All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, chapter 2. Camp registrations. Camp registrations. Camp registrations. Get them in as soon as you can if you haven't already. We really need to get a head count and get people divided up into their cabins and everything. So um, it's going to be a good year. Pray for Moera to go either way. We're kind of stuck there. The guy from the university who usually does it, John, has retired, which is fine, but they have not hired a replacement for him. So although we have many people that are qualified to run it like staff, we don't have anybody that actually has keys to the place. So just pray that that either goes or doesn't. That's fine if it doesn't. Um, We don't want to force doors open. Um, But anyway, just be in prayer that way that God's will is done. So, you know... um, but we've got other fun stuff. It'll be just a great camp anyway, but that's one of the snags we've run into so far uh, with it. Okay. All right, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is the letter of joy to, from Paul to this wonderful church um, that are such a blessing to him and are encouraging him even while he's in prison. And so he writes this letter of joy to them, and although he's very happy with the way Things are going there, and here's good report. It's been 11 years, and they're still walking with Jesus. Hello, you know, nice. Um, I tell my girls, or actually not just my girls, any of my kids, I've got four drivers now. And every one of them, I tell them, if you can get the first year under your belt without an accident, without a ticket, you'll probably never have one their whole life. Just drive that carefully until you get used to things for the first year, and you'll be fine. And... This is sort of like that. They've gone 11 years walking with Christ. They've probably run into some serious opposition in their lives, some serious trials that they've come through um, and learned to, that they do go through them. You know, In other words, they're not a, it's not a dead end, it's a tunnel. And you go through those things, and they're dark, but you come out on the other side and it's light. Um, and after you go through several of those, you start to pick up a rhythm with the Lord. You're like, okay. You start understanding things a little bit better. Things aren't a shock to you. I, I, I use the McBrides as an example here. Breaking Chains was a tremendous success this year, I think. Wonderful turnout, uh, fantastic. And uh, God's miraculous hand was upon it with the Saturday no rain thing and all that. But, I mean, as soon as it was over, it, the rain came, which is fine. We all want rain, rain gauge. I saw your post today. Sorry, you need more rain in your rain gauge. We need that. But then... He had a water leak in his house after having nine people spend the day. Actually, right beforehand, his, his dishwasher broke. And then right afterwards, uh, it was all over. There's a water leak in his basement, but he couldn't tend to it because his mother had a heart attack on the way into graduation ceremony and got t- taken to the hospital. And the heart stopped for 40 minutes or 40, who knows, 40 seconds, in and out, praying through this whole thing. I mean, you know. Boom, spiritual warfare kind of thing. But you're through it. She's got a pacemaker. You've got extended time. She's home. Hallelujah. And, you know, you start to pick up a rhythm. Not that you expect things to go south, but you know what they say, if you're not, if you're not running into the devil, you're probably going his way kind of thing. And you definitely ran into him. You know, he attacked. Eleven years they've been walking with Jesus. And so he's got good things to say about them, but that, he doesn't leave it there. Because he's never to the point, Paul isn't anyway, hey, they got this. It's a letter of encouragement to them to continue and to grow 
don't get stagnant, which is the other enemy of our walk with Jesus Christ. Not only does Satan want us to completely go backwards and away from him, he'd also be content if we just stopped growing and we stopped moving forward with him. Uh, Stop learning how to love deeper, how to understand God more, um, memorizing more of his word, hiding it deeper in our hearts, walking closer with Jesus every day, being filled with the Spirit and moving in the gifts of the Spirit more than you ever have before. And so Paul's encouraging him in this. And so we started off with that. Hey, way to go. You guys are a joy to me. Whenever I pray or think about you, it's wonderful. Uh, I, don't, I don't have heart. It brings my heart up. It, it builds me up. It lifts me up. And so chapter 2, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if any of that is between us, is what he's saying, fulfill my joy, By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, that's his exhortation to them. If there's any of that going on in our lives, please grow. Please continue in that. That's the enemy of any church, is when you stop being of like mind, a body of believers, not the whole church. The whole church, we're all doing our thing, and we're following the Holy Spirit, but a fellowship, a group of believers, when your minds get in separate directions, and you think they ought to be going this way, and no, we're going to go this way, and you don't understand, that's when you get divisions and, um, and a break that takes place. And that happens. I mean, it happened with Paul and Barnabas. It happens to the best of us. They had a difference of mind on Mark. They didn't have the same mind on Mark. They weren't one in the Spirit on Mark. And this is the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Barnabas, as he's called. That's amazing. And they go their separate ways. We don't ever see that they reconcile each other, but Mark gets reconciled to Paul later on. And so there's divisions among us. And so maybe Paul knows that. Maybe he understands that. And so that's his prayer. Most of all, at the end of his life, is that, hey, we just all have one mind. Now, he's not saying that we just get along for getting along's sake. That's not what he's asking for. Peace for peace's sake, no. Because that leads to compromise. No, he just wants us to have oneness in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. They're all being led in the same direction. And that's, that's why we have a board of elders at Calvary Chapel, is I've got ideas, but we always pray about stuff. And if we don't have the same mind on it, something's wrong. You know, We don't want to pick on the one guy that doesn't have the right mind on it. You better get your mind. You know, we we hold off then. Wait a minute, why aren't we in unity on this? And we got to pray it through. we got to think it through. And we got to let it sit for a little bit. Because when there's no peace, we don't like to move forward. We're very slow that way. But when we do have peace, we're like a rocket. We take off. But without peace from God in our hearts, something's, something's amiss. We're off somewhere. Either the majority is or the minority is, but we need to get of one mind on this. And so we wait. And I think the person or persons that have that off mind on it or just don't feel right about it, that's encouraging to them. It's okay to not have peace about something. You don't want yes men, not a bunch of people going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, let's just do that, whatever you think. Mm-mm. We don't have a peace about this. Let's hold off. And so Paul says, let's have the same mind on this, being in one accord. You remember the last time we heard that word, one accord? It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When they were in the upper room, they were all together in one accord. 
And what happened when that group of people up there in prayer brought there, told to go there by Jesus himself, and they obeyed God's word and sat there and waited and didn't leave that room until they were sent from that room. They were in one accord, and that one accord is in obedience to God's word. Jesus told them, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the power that I'm going to send to you. Okay, so they all went. They all agreed with God's word. They all did what he told them to do, and they waited there until God did what he wanted to do, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit were given. A great work was done. They came out of that upper room speaking in tongues, every one of them. And the people around all heard them speaking in their own language the glories of God. It wasn't a message to them. They were just praising the Lord in these unknown languages. And the people all heard them because they were coming from all over the world to Jerusalem at this feast time to, to do their duty as their responsibility as a Jew. Whether you were an Egyptian Jew or whatever, they'd all come into the faith, especially the Ethiopian and so on. All these guys would come, but they all heard in their own language the glories of God. And Peter gave a sermon in one language, and they all heard it and understood it, and 3,000 people got saved. That's what happens when a body of believers is in one accord. They hear from the Lord. They all do exactly what God tells them to do. And they're in one accord. And so Paul knows that. The power of any body of believers, the Philippians included, is the fact that they have fellowship in the Spirit. They have comfort of love. They have affection and mercy for one another. Mercy is so important in a body. You must be merciful and gracious with each other. We all do. And when we are, and we're all in one accord, we just want to do what Jesus wants us to do. We have no selfish ambition. We heard that last week, last Wednesday, that some were preaching Christ from selfish ambition. Ambition is fine. Being excited to tell, zealous to tell people about Jesus is great. I'm ambitious. I think I'm going to win. I'm just going to focus on Nebraska. All of Nebraska is going to get saved. That's ambitious. It's not selfish ambitious because you're trying to lead them to Jesus. You see, there's a difference. These guys were operating from selfish ambition, which, which obviously is a problem for them, and it can cause a problem later on. And Paul says, when you're in one accord, when you have comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection, mercy, make sure there's no selfish ambition. That's not because you want your way done, because you don't like the plan, because you think it's bad, so you begin to do things to scuttle it. That's the word we use. When you want to scuttle something, you come in and you undermine what's going on just because you don't agree or because you don't think it's right. Don't do that selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, that's, that's the word from conceited. It's about you. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And Paul knows that. Now, they're not doing that. He hasn't heard any rumors. He just knows we're people. And we all have individual wills, which he's going to talk about here in a minute. Every one of us has our own will. Everyone in this room, there's a lot of wills in this room. Jesus is the one we obey and we submit to, which he's going to talk about, but we all have our own wills. And when your will and their will and my will, and they don't line up, then we got problems because we're people. I love working by myself. You know why? Because I hate other people's wills. I do. No, I know exactly what I'm going to do here. You should do this. No, I don't want to do that. I want to do it this way, but that's harder. I don't care. That's how I want to do it. I'm just that way. So leave me alone. That's where entrepreneurship comes from. That's why we have our own businesses, right? I can't work for a boss. I can't stand that. 
That's a dumb way to do it, boss. You don't last long when you keep saying that every day. We have a lot of wills. But here's the thing. We all have one thing in common. We're all commanded by, by God's Word to do one thing, and that's to submit our will to His will. And when all of these wills in this room submit to the will of Jesus Christ, things are great. Things move. God moves. We're out of the way. My will is not undermining. My will is not backstabbing. It's not backbiting. We're not undermining each other or scuttling the mission of God. It just works. And so Paul knows that about these people. Oh, it's been 11 years. You guys are doing great. Please be in one accord. Stay there having the same love, the same mind. Be like-minded. Let this mind be in you. That each esteems other better than himself. That's the key. How do I get my will out of the way of your will? I need to think that your will is more important than mine. I esteem you higher. He says, take heed to yourself. I want you to do that. I want you to watch out for your own interests, but also look out for the interests of others. Make sure you're doing that. It's easy to get focused on yourself. It's easy to get focused on your problems, your trials that you've been through. And you can make that your mantra. My Christianity is about the trials I've been through. Our Christianity is supposed to be about the trials they're going through. And if my trials help them go through their trials, great. Then I should bring those up. But otherwise... I should be looking into their eyes and looking into their hearts and seeing what I can do as like Christ. You know, the biggest burden Christ ever placed on his disciples was just letting them know that he was going to the cross. He never asked them to do a thing about it. You guys don't know how bad you've got it. You know, you're arguing about who's greatest. I'm the one that's got to go fishing all the time. I'm the one that's got to go to the cross. I'm the one that's going to get whipped. You never hear him talk about any of that stuff. It's never about him. It's always about others. And Paul knows that. That's why he even counts it joy. He says, I'm, I'm in prison, but I think it's going to work out great for everybody. He doesn't say, Yo, you guys think you got it bad. Bread and water, again. You know, he doesn't say any of that stuff. And so he passes that on to us. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, he's not telling us to neglect ourselves either. I mean, and even he tells Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine and those around you will get saved. It's very important that my walk with Jesus is tight and solid and disciplined. It really needs to be there because I'm not going to do anybody any good if I'm walking away from Jesus because all I'm going to do is lead them away from Jesus. I've got to be as close to him as possible. I'm going to bring them to the shepherd. I have to know where he is. I can't take people to Jesus if I'm not sure where he's at end my sentence in a preposition, which my mom would smack me for, an English teacher. And I can't spell. Isn't that ironic? I love it. You've got to know where Christ is if you're going to lead people to Christ. You need to be in his presence. We need to be filled with his spirit. We have to be very in tune with what he's doing in order to bring people there. And Paul knows that. He says, you're doing great, but make sure you stay in those places. Verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of, the de of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's a promise. It's absolutely going to happen. 
The creator of the universe says everybody's going to bow to Jesus because he's king. He is. They may not like it now. They can argue with you about it now. But when his kingdom comes in, when he establishes and is seated on the throne here, you know he's seated at the right hand of the Father now, they will bow the knee whether they like it or not. It's just a matter of fact. It's not a matter of opinion anymore. Right now it's a matter of opinion. I don't know about this Jesus guy. I mean, eventually it's not going to be a matter of opinion. It's like, oh, well, I guess he's king. And they will bow. That isn't how you want to bow. That isn't how you want your friends and family to bow. Eventually they're all going to bow and realize he is who he said he was. Everybody that's been witnessing to you and ministering to you your whole life was right. You did need to surrender your life to Christ, but now it's too late. Now you're submitting to him because you have to, not because you love him. And so we have that. That's a promise there. But let's back up to the deity of Jesus Christ because this is clearly what Paul's getting at here. I want you to know who he is. He says, Jesus, who being in the form of God, he is a form of God. He's God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Can't escape that. The scriptures clearly teach that. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't usurp any of God's authority, the Father's authority, by saying, I'm equal to you. That's huge. I mean, there wasn't a son on earth at that time that'd say, I'm equal to my father. That would be blasphemous. That'd be, that'd be rebelliousness to say that I'm as good as my father. No, he's my dad. He's always my dad. He's always a step ahead. He's always a little bit taller, a little bit stronger, a little bit smarter. But here, Paul says he found it not robbery to be equal with God. So he was equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You can't miss that word coming, which means he was existing beforehand. He came from a place to be Jesus here on earth. He's always been the son. So you can't have an everlasting father without an everlasting son. That's why he's called the everlasting father. Father of who? Father of the everlasting son. So Jesus has always existed. He's always been a part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's always been a part of the Trinity. And so this is proving that or at least declaring it. Uh, a lot of people don't believe that, but every Christian that reads their Bible or believes their Bible should absolutely believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. The Bible teaches that. But made himself of no reputation. So he didn't have to come this way, but he decided to come this way. I'm going to take the form of a bondservant. That's where we see the loincloth and the washing of feet, the feeding of the 5,000, and many, many other places where Christ served, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, appeared, but still what? God. Fully man, fully God. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, obedience. This is going to come up a lot. You don't need to be obedient if you agree. See, I don't have to obey if I agree. It's just agreement. It's when I disagree. It's when I have a problem with it and I still do it anyway. That's obedience. I want my kids to have, we teach our kids, first-time obedience. It's for safety's sake. It's not because we have crowns on our head. Jenny and I have a little tiara and crown and we wear it. We want our kids to bow and touch the scepter or whatever. It's because it's, it's safe. When we tell them to stop, we want them to learn that when dad says stop, they immediately stop because it could be the difference one more step could be the end of them, whether that's running to the street or climbing up a ladder to the roof or on the roof with, because dad left the ladder up there by mistake. I'm not saying that ever happened or anything. <laughs> JC, 
I think he was three. I left the ladder up and went inside, and I came out, and there he was. <laughs> oh, okay. Jenny's not around, is she? I said, Buzz, stop. Just sit down. Boom, he just sat down, and I climbed up there, and I got him. Ooh. Dad fail, right? But dad's success in the sense that Jenny and I taught him first-time obedience, and it, it was a catastrophe. What if he was one of those? One of those, you know? Stop, now. Oh, boy. That hurt, you know? And so obedience to God, I want to have that obedience to God when I hear it in his word. When his word speaks to me, and I'm not so sure he's right, or I have my mind, my will, hasn't joined his will yet, because I have a separate will, I want to have that first time obedience with God and say, he said stop. I don't know why he said stop. I don't know why it's so important. I don't know why he's so emphatic about it. But it's God. It's my dad who loves me. I'm just going to stop. And you know what? When we do, we figure it out later on because as, as I grabbed him, you know, and I'm coming down the ladder and Jenny's face said it all to him. <gasps> and he went, oh, mom's worried, you know? This was bad kind of thing. I don't know if she did that. It made the story better though, so... She probably never found out. She's probably hearing about it now for the first time. Better be careful. First time obedience with God is so important. And so Paul tells him, here's who you're being obedient to. God come in the flesh. You're not obedient to a, a, a teacher. He's not a um, holy man. He's not a prophet even. I mean, he is. He operated in, in all those areas. He is God come in the flesh. It's okay to be absolutely first-time obedient to Jesus Christ and his word. And so he tells him that. He came in the appearance of man, but he humbled himself. So don't let that humility fool you because we have the idea of kings strutting with their robes on and their ornaments. We just had the big wedding, right? Across the pond. I saw a great ad. It says, it's finally taken 200 and some years to infiltrate their government. Now plan two of 1776. You know, because we've got an American in the, in the castle now. So that's so funny. <laughs> Implement plan, or phase two of 1776. Anyway, we saw a lot of pomp and circumstance when they came down the aisle. And it was a beautiful ceremony. And I can't believe people berated her for her dress. What a lovely dress. What a lovely bride. What a wonderful day they had. You know, let it go. Who, who, who called you? Anyway, you know. But boy, it was a nice dress. <laughs> and he looked pretty sharp too for a red-headed guy. Um, sorry, no offense. But we get the idea that that's what a king does. And so when you hear about King Jesus coming down to earth and we see him in a loincloth, we kind of scratch our heads. That doesn't quite fit. That doesn't quite fit. And he says, don't let that fool you. Wait till you see him. Wait till you see him in his glory. Wait till you see him on his throne. Wait till you see him as light, you know. It's going to be amazing. And so he, he, he warns him about that, being obedient, coming in the likeness of man. But he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, which is the worst death you could have at that time. It was the most excruciating, and it was, well, like the Bible says, he who hangs on, the, on a tree is accursed. So it was the worst death, like a beheading, or I guess there's other deaths that were more noble, you know. But the death on the cross was meant to be a shame to that person and their family. But that's where he went. Therefore God also has highly exalted him 
and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So the name, the name of Jesus is so important. It's not, it's not just any God. It's not just anybody. You can't call him whatever you want. It is truly the name of Jesus is how people get saved. There's no other Savior. There's no other religion. Christianity is exclusive. It is the way, the truth, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. Not a way, a truth, and a life. The way. And so he, he really drives that home. It's his name, it's his name, it's his name. Every name, and, and it's this Jesus. Not every other Jesus out there, because there were a lot of guys named um, Joshua back then. Yeshua, or Jesus is what we call him, but Yeshua was his name. There's a lot of Yeshuas. No, it's this Jesus. This one. Let me give you some scriptures. I didn't have time to print them, so we're going to have to use our, our fingers here. John chapter 20, verse 28. This is all has to do with the deity of Jesus, him being God come in the flesh. And this is where Thomas, we all have read it, but Thomas calls him God. I think it's just important to remind ourselves of that. Jesus has showed up after eight days. Uh, verse 26, we'll start there. Then after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Now, Thomas hadn't seen him before. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. In other words, Jesus was willing to do everything Thomas had told the other guys he was going to do. I'm not going to believe you guys until I, until I put my fingers in his wounds. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be unbelieving. By all means, put your fingers in my wounds, which I love that about Christ. He doesn't have to do that. He could say, well, you know what? Too bad. Because you don't get to do that. No, it's, if that's what it takes for you to believe, absolutely, Thomas. I guarantee you, Thomas didn't start poking him. But here's what Thomas exclaims. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now that would have been a good time if Jesus wasn't God come in the flesh to correct him. He's corrected other people. Remember the one time they called him good? He didn't even like that. He says, no one's good but God. In other words, right? You understand that, right? You called me good, but no one's good but God, so you're, you're actually proclaiming that I'm God come in the flesh. He doesn't correct him. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Believed what? That you are my Lord and my God. Jesus confirms it, that he is God come in the flesh. They say, well, where in the Bible does it say Jesus says he's God? Right here. I mean, no, it doesn't say, I am God. He does say that at one point. He says, I am. When he's talking there, he says, I am. But not at this point. This is a great, this is a great moment here. I believe you're God. I believe you're my Lord. And Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believed what? That he is God come in the flesh. Our second scripture, Isaiah 9.6. It's on all of our Christmas cards. And it's a great verse. I love that. It's my favorite verse for Christmas cards. I really think it declares who he is. Describes him perfectly. And, and we're going to go on from six, but that, well, we'll just, well, we'll just do six. For unto us a child is born. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. For unto us a son is given. And so it begins to describe this son, this child who's going to be given for us. And the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to be the ruler. Ultimate ruler. And his name will be called his name, remember we've been talking about the name of Jesus, his name is going to be wonderful. He's a counselor. He's mighty God. He's also everlasting father. 
Okay, this son is called the everlasting father. He's also the prince of peace. And he goes on to describe what he's going to do with all that name. But that's all him. That all describes him. It's not like, well, some people are going to call him wonderful and some people are going to call him counselor. No one's going to agree on his name. That's how some people teach this. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, here's what his name means. Here's who he is. Here's his identity. He's going to be wonderful, amazing to watch. He's going to be a counselor. He's going to be the wisest man you've ever met and have the answers for everybody, for every question. He's going to be Mighty God, capital G. He's the Everlasting Father. It's amazing to me. Now, how that works, I don't know, but there it is, the Trinity. Prince of Peace. So he's not only the Everlasting Father who's King of the Universe, he's also the Prince of Peace, which is his Son, and so on. So there's our, there's our second verse, talking about his deity, him being God. I keep using that word because that's what... That's what you use. Um, I remember the first time I heard uh, "deophobic." It was in a it was in a skillet song. Your deophobic mind. I thought, oh, that's perfect. People that are agnostic or those that are are, uh, are uh, opposed to God, they're, they're deophobic. They're afraid of God. Um, they're afraid of Him being God. Hebrews one eight, probably the most um, compelling. There's actually a guy online that had had some questions, ended up wanting to argue, not question, like the debate. So that's how people start debates. I have a few questions for you, Pastor. All right, go ahead. If God were so big, oh, never mind. Click. Could he make a rock? Nope, he can't. He's too big to make rocks bigger than him. That's the answer to that question. Okay, Hebrews 1.8. But to the Son, he says, this is God speaking, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That kind of ends the debate right there. If the Father calls his Son God, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. And I gave that scripture to him, and they said, well, Hebrews is about the old covenant, not the new. I went, what? Well, first of all, it's in the New Testament, but fine, you're right. It is referring to the old covenant, turning into the new covenant, but it doesn't change the truth of who Jesus is in this. And at the end of it, he says, well, oh, that's, I said, well, I, I don't think I can help you then. If you can't believe that scripture, I don't think I can help you. If you're going to just, he goes, well, no, you have, you have. I think we both learned a lot. He said, yeah, we both learned a lot. When you have to throw out scripture to prove your doctrine, you need to throw your doctrine out. Or your dogma. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. It says it twice. I love it. Your God, God. They're calling each other God. I mean, it's just, it's so perfect. God's word protects itself from weird, strange doctrines that we can come up with sometimes. If you just keep reading all the way through it, you're like, I don't think Jesus is God. Oh, wait, Hebrews 1.8. Okay, that was wrong. And you just change your doctrine immediately. First time obedience. You just change it instantly. It's okay. I love that second part. It has nothing to do with tonight's Bible study. He was anointed with the oil of gladness more than your companions. In other words, he was the gladdest man that's ever lived. Jesus was the gladdest man that ever lived. I love glad people. I'm not a glad person. I try to be a glad person. I have moments where I'm a glad person, but most of the time I've got that face. It just looks like, are you, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. What's wrong with you? You don't look happy. And then I hate that. Then you want to make me mad? You ought to smile. 
I don't want to smile now because you're telling me to smile. That's why I work alone again. That's Three wonderful scriptures that should just bring joy to our heart. We serve a Savior who is God come in the flesh. We have a God who loved us so much that he took the form of a man and died on a cross for our sins. That's who we serve. That's who we worship. That should make us the second gladdest people that have ever lived, you know? No matter what's going on in my life, no matter what kind of trials or tribulations, I have a God that cares and thinks of me that so much because he didn't have to. He was fine without us. He could have just started over and just done something new, but he didn't. He wanted to fulfill and finish what he had hoped would happen in all of us until sin entered our lives and said, I got to figure out how to get rid of this sin in their lives so we can have what I, what I envisioned, what I have planned, you know? And he sent his son to be the solution to our problem. And he didn't have to do that, but he did. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved. He never wants them to forget that. Paul always calls them beloved, not only by him, but by their God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Got Arminianism and Calvinism mixed right there. It's a beautiful blend. If you don't know what those two things are, good for you. Stay away from it as far as you can. It's the weirdest argument the church has ever come up with. Calvinists think you don't have a choice, that every grain of dust floating in the wind is all preordained by God. You have no choice no matter. You're either saved or you're not, and that's up to him. It has nothing to do with you. If you believed on Christ, it's because he wanted you to. Mm. Sorry, not a fan of Calvinism. Arminius, though, they got their own problems. But here he's got both blended here. I want you to work out your own salvation, but it's God who works in you. Circle those two words. You work out, God works in. Both are absolutely true. You don't have to tell people to obey something if they're pre-programmed to obey. It's a ridiculous thought. I want you to obey God. I really don't have a choice in the matter if I'm a Calvinist. I'm either going to or I'm not, but it has nothing to do with me. It's how he programmed me. It doesn't work. Think of the prayers that have been offered up. Some of the prayers. Think of Jesus' prayer. Fathers, when he, when he prays, I want thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would you pray that if there was another option? If God's will is to be done on earth because he pre-programmed it and commanded it, how would I pray, God, I want your will to be done. Please, let your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. Well, that's kind of automatic. Why would I even pray that? That's like saying, I pray, God, that these chairs would be brown. They are. You don't pray those things unless there's another option out there. The second prayer that he prays is in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There's two different wills going on. Jesus' will and the Father's will. Jesus says, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. But, but, I want your will to be done, not mine. In other words, there was obedience there. Jesus learned obedience, and it was right there. We saw it in the garden. And there was no other way, and that's why the cup came to him, and that's why the cup of God's wrath was poured on him, and he drank it full strength because he wanted to do his Father's will. There's that first-time obedience. We need to have that. Always pray that way. I have a lot of ideas. I have a, I have a, I have a will, and I totally understand that I have a will, and it doesn't always line up with God's. 
And so the end of my prayer is after I've begged and asked for all these different things in my life, I always pray at the end, but you know what? I want your will, not mine. These are my thoughts. And if any of those line up with you, God, great, let's do that. But if any of them don't line up with you, then please throw them out because I want to be obedient to you. 1 Corinthians 4.19, James 4.15, if the Lord wills, both of those places, if the Lord wills, that was Paul's writings. I want to come to you. I long to be with you. I want to do this, that, or the other thing, but only if the Lord wills. Two different wills, Paul's will and God's will, and Paul knew that he needed to acquiesce to God's. Not my will, but your will be done. It's a great life. We have a very simple job as a Christian. What am I supposed to do as a Christian? Obey God's word. Obedience brings freedom. It doesn't sound like it. it you would think obedience would bring um, slavery or servitude or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with serving God, don't get me wrong, but forced. I've got to obey. You must obey. I think there's a, there's a I saw this, that there's a trick that parents were giving their teens who found themselves under peer pressure, I'm sure you've heard of it, in a difficult situation that when you run into that, let them know, your friends, that you need to call me. And I'll know when you call, because I've already given you permission to stay out as late as you want to. But if you call me and say, Dad, I was wondering if I, if I could stay a little bit longer, I'll know that that's a trigger for me to say, absolutely not, I want you to come home right now. And they can hang up the phone and say, no, my dad wants me to come home right now, and that's their out. You know? I don't know if that's a great comparison, but that's what obedience brings us as Christians. When God's word says to do this, I do this. And someone asks me, why do you do that? God's word tells me to do that. Why do you go to church? Why do you worship? Why do you not forsake the assembling of the brethren? Why, why can't I just worship on my fishing boat? Well, I know you can, but God's word says we're not to forsake the assembling together of the brethren. This is a matter of some, so I don't want to be that some. I want to be the one that's obedient to God. I'm going to do what my dad says as a Christian. I want to obey him. He gives us permission to put the blame on him for what we do. I want to be careful how I say that because I do it with love and devotion and I'm not afraid to tell people why I do what I do. It's because I love God. But there's obedience there that frees us up from that pressure that we find in the world. Why don't you compromise? Why don't you do that? I can't. I can't. Why can't you? As a Christian, I'm not allowed. I've got to obey my dad. Oh. Because nine times out of ten, that other person thinks they're a Christian also. They may even be. But then it makes them think that twice. It's, oh, I mean, as Christians, we can't do that? Well, no, his word says we're not supposed to do that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not telling you you can't do whatever you want to do. If, if you want to stay at the party, go ahead and stay at the party. That's between you and your dad. But for me, in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, It's neat. Obedience just brings wonderful freedom for us. And so he says that to him. Um, He works in you. He works outside. There's that the, the duality there. But he works both in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, you want, remember Paul's difficulty? Uh, why do I do things I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I don't do? That was his, that's his battle. And then we have, and that's in chapter 7 of Acts. Then he can, or, uh, Romans, sorry, Romans. And then chapter 8, good for you. Who said that? Nice. Good. Then chapter 8 is when the Holy Spirit comes, and that's the, not only the will, but the to-do part. It's the Holy Spirit in us that allows us to be obedient to God. 
gives us the ability to do it. We don't have to fight our flesh constantly. We can be walking in the Spirit and be obedient. So both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Fail. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, it's for them to observe you not complaining and disputing about whatever it is. It's easy to point to our work. I think that's probably the hardest for us to just do without complaining or disputing because we feel in some ways that we have a right to or that um, we can improve things if we voice our opinion on these things. And by all means, voice your opinion. It's just the complaining and disputing part. Nothing wrong with saying, okay, great, I'll be glad to do that. Have you ever considered maybe doing it this way? And if they say, yeah, we have, and we're not going to do it, great, I'm off, and just let it be, you know. Because we live in a crooked and perverse generation, and we are to be his witnesses. We are the living epistles that people read about him. What does it mean to be a Christian? It looks like this. Someone who doesn't complain and dispute at their job or complain and dispute in their home with their wife or with their husband. We don't complain. We don't dispute. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Please be bright lights. In other words... Kids are supposed to be bright lights wherever they go, Christian kids. Um, And they're ignited by the Holy Spirit just like we are, and they need to be powered by the love of Jesus Christ as well as we are. Not just because mom and dad said we're supposed to be lights. Be light. Well, that's easier said than done. But just like God works in us to will and to do, he needs to work in our kids to will and to do, and so they have to be taught that they need to rely on Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit as well if they're ever going to be light in this world. Hold fast. Don't hold loose. (laughs) Hold strong. Hold, hold, hold the word of life. Don't let go of God's word for the sake of agreement. Don't let go of God's word for the sake of peace. Don't let go of God's word for any any reason. Hold fast to the word of life so that I may receive in the day of Christ that I have not, or I rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. In other words, when I get to heaven, I want to see all of you with me. I want to see you all there. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He's just alluding to the fact that he's being persecuted for his faith, and he considers it. Uh, I'm being put in jail because I'm telling people about Christ, and because you guys are being light and salt in this world, you are condemning me in the Roman government for being a Christian. So in other words, your lives are living sacrifices, offerings, and I don't have anything to do with what you're doing over there, really, except that I started it, and because of that, now I'm being poured out as well on top of your sacrifice. I'm being sacrificed with it. He's more than happy to do that. What a blessing. I love that I'm condemned because of you guys. I love that I'm in prison because of what you're doing out there for Christ. That's a great thing, Paul says. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Paul really understood what it meant to if I'm not walking into Satan, I must be going his way. He really got that. 
He thought, oh, this is fantastic. I got beat to a pulp last night, and it wasn't because I was carnal. It was because I was talking about Jesus, and that brought him joy to think of himself suffering like Christ suffered. He got it. He understands it. Verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. In other words, he's going to, He's going to come visit you. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know, um, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. In other words, he's sort of saying, I'm planning on seeing you. I'm pretty confident God's going to let me have this but still leaving it in God's hands. Timothy. Titus uh, was okay. Remember Titus? Titus was completely Greek, so it was no big deal. He didn't have to be circumcised. And and Paul says, absolutely, you cannot circumcise. I mean, it was in Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. No, Titus isn't going to be circumcised. He's going to be a Christian who's uncircumcised because you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. He made Titus the guinea pig for that. Okay? And Titus was like, you know. Timothy, on the other hand, was half Jew. And he knew that the fact that Timothy wasn't circumcised was going to be a hindrance for the Jews hearing the gospel from him. So he says, hey, we got to do this, Timothy. I know you're half Greek, half Jew, but you got to get circumcised. So talk about a guy serving the Lord. Can you imagine that? I mean... I'm imagining it right now, and I probably shouldn't be in this great detail, but I'm thinking, how do you bring that conversation up? Say, Timothy, got a big day tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Ooh. It's one thing to tell, hey, you know, uh, Josh, get out there and change the toilet paper out there. And it's another thing to look at Josh and say, Josh, I got a question for you. <laughs> you know? As long as we're serving here over in Israel, it's going to be kind of a hindrance. What a good guy, man. Hey, whatever. Hey, whatever. If that's what it takes to preach the gospel, if that's in the way of preaching the gospel, I don't need it. That's awesome. And so that's why Paul has such high regard for him. He says in verse 20, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Now that's a sad thing. That's the only one this far into Paul's life that Paul can honestly send and say, I need you to do this for me. It's hard to be a number two guy. Timothy was never a number one guy. At one point, he was raising up elders in some churches and, and you know, had a really important role, but he still came to Paul, and Paul told him what to do and sent him over here and sent him over there. He knew what to do, and it was for Christ. He wasn't like doing, well, I don't know, I guess Paul said to do this. I don't know why. He knew why he was doing it. He had a relationship with God. He probably didn't need Paul to tell him what to do, but Paul sent him. And Paul knew when I send Timothy, it's going to go just like God wants it to go. He's going to do exactly, and that's a hard place, but Timothy was able to do it. Paul says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. There are people I can send to you that will do what I've asked them to do, but not because they have a heart for you or love you. Sure, they'll do it. Take this letter to these guys through, you know, snake-infested swamps. You bet. But not because they love the people, only because... They did what Paul wanted them to do. Paul says, this guy's going to sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own. 
Paul didn't know anybody at this time that he could send that wasn't going to do it for their glory. That wasn't going to do it for, for God's glory. They were going to do it for their glory. That's all he knew. Were people that were going to do it for their own glory. I can't send them. They're out to make a name for themselves. That's sad. It's sad when pastors surround themselves with sheep for protection. It's wrong. The shepherd should be out protecting the sheep. That's right. And when the shepherd starts complaining about the sheep and wondering why they're not pulling the sleigh for him, that's a bad thing. I've run into that several times where the sheep have been circled around as a barrier for the pastor, and it's wrong. Um, They are seeking their own. They're not seeking the welfare of the other people. They need to be in the front, taking the bullets, whatever, you know, the protector, just like a shepherd does. That's what they do. It's what Christ does. So they should also, and Paul at this time didn't have anybody but Timothy. So here's what he says about him. But you know his proven character. It's one thing to have character. It's something to have proven character. Um, I, don't, I know the name of the band, but I'm not going to say it. But they said, you know, I, 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 I'd like to think that I'd do those wonderful things, but I don't know that I would. And that's a paraphrase of their song. I like to think that I'm brave. I'd like to think that I'm strong, but I've never been put in a situation to prove that I have those attributes, really, in the face of danger. Paul and Timothy have proven character. So we all have character in Christ, right? Every one of us. We all say we love Jesus, we follow Jesus, but when put to the test, that's when it becomes proven. And most of us don't want that test. I would say none of us would really want the test that Timothy's gone through, the test that Paul has gone through to show what proven character looks like. But it hardens us, not not embitters us, don't misunderstand me, but it hardens us to be more useful, sharper. That's the best thing you can do is get a Rockwell hardness on a on a piece of blade, on a, on a knife or a, or a sword or whatever, to a certain level, I'd be 58 is ideal, is what the Rockwell hardness should be on a piece of steel for it to be sharp and hold its edge. And you only get that through fire and beatings. You beat that metal, you heat that metal, you beat it until it's so strong. You ever looked in the hardware store, if you don't know what swords are, maybe that's a strange thing for you, go in the hardware store and look for the galvanized chain, and then look for the yellow chain. Jeff knows what I'm talking about, right? The yellow chain. That's, that's the stuff you use to hold down skid loaders or when you strap down heavy stuff, you've got to use the yellow chain. And that's what God, that's what proven character is. I want to be that. We all want to be that. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. In other words, I'm convinced that I'm going to be right behind him. But he always says, if God wills. There's always God's will, and Paul's always ready to give up his will for that. Now, 25 is the conclusion, really quick. Um, Not much to expound upon. Did I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus? He's the one that brought news to him about the Philippians, and that's why he's responding. So in other words, he's going to write this letter to the Philippians, and he's going to send it back with Epaphroditus, back to them. But he comes from the Philippians. Hey, how you doing, Paul? We heard you're in jail. Oh, thanks for coming. I just overjoyed. Here, let me write you a letter. Okay? He's the courier. Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he 
was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost to death, unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in, in esteem. Because for this work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. There's a lot here, if you read between the lines, but I don't want to do too much of that. Paul is making sure they receive him back gladly. Why? Wouldn't they automatically do that? Well, if you read this, it looks like he got sick while he was there, almost died. I don't think he was supposed to return. It seems to me he was supposed to stay with him, and that was their intent. You go minister to Paul. Be there. You bet. I got this. And he almost died. Now, they heard about his sickness. He's like, I don't know. I think I better go back because they're, they're worried about me back there. You really want to go back, Epaphroditus? I just think it's best for everybody if I go back. That's how I read this anyway. You go back. It make me. It put my mind at ease if you went back and made sure that their mind was at ease. So I'll send him back to you like that. And that's... I don't know if that's true or not, but that's kind of how I read this because he's so emphatic. Now, receive him back. And he's a good guy and he really almost died for Jesus. You know, you shouldn't have to say all that if he was just supposed to send a message and bring back a message. But look at Paul's graciousness, if I'm right, which I may not be. You can throw this all out if you want to. Look at his graciousness. Absolutely. I'm good here. I got this Epaphroditus. I got Timothy. He's going to stay. You need to go back. You should go back. And I'm going to write you a letter so that, you know, they all know how wonderful you did while you were here and how great it was. And you go back and you, you, you just send a message to them. Bring this letter to them. It's really important you get this letter back to them, you know. So I'm going to send him back to you. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for uh, the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. In other words, they came to bless him. And he did, and now he's on his way home. And that's where we close tonight. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's heart and his willingness to write this letter. Even while he was suffering and having a difficult time in prison, he thought it necessary to take that time when he could be mourning about himself and praying his way through his trial to go ahead and build other people up in it. I God, I pray that we'd have that same heart. Um, I love prayer, and we all need prayer um, for each other, and we do covet each other's prayers, but um, help us to look outside of ourselves. We'll take heed to ourselves. We'll take care of our own needs, our own necessity for sure, but help us to esteem others higher than ourselves and look out for their well-being, even when we're not going through such a great time. Um, help us to minister. In fact, that's probably what will help us get through our bad time is if we're ministering and giving out to others. It gets away from that pity, Lord, that we have for ourselves. Um, help us have pity for others, mercy for others. Help us to be good Samaritans as we see people around us that need our help, that we would help, Lord. With whatever means we have, not beyond our means, but within our means, help them, Lord, with whatever we can. Thank you, Lord, for tonight and your message and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.